Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman, your host. Today, I have a couple new people on with our editorial team. I have Nick Trujillo. He is our, um, and I hope I said that correctly, Nick. Trujillo, uh, it's close Trujillo, enough. all right. He is our reporter for uh, Yorktown News and the Katona Lewisboro Times. We also have someone who's been working with us for several months now, but she's now working with us full-time starting this week, Vim Wilkinson. She's a Somers resident. She's our director of client content and marketing and also our business and special sections editor. So welcome to Vim Wilkinson as well. We also have Tom Wellogorski, our Somers record and North Salem news editor and Brian Marshauser, our editor for Yorktown News and the Katona Lewis Road Times. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have today Bob Dumas. He's our editor of Mayapak News. I've been filling in for him. Um, I know Bob's okay with me sharing this. You know, he's been in the hospital the last couple of weeks, uh, not COVID, uh, just due to complications from diabetes, which I know he's been public about. We, we all wish him well, and hopefully he'll be home by the time this actually podcast uh, gets released. So, uh, you know, we wish him the best. Then I'm going to turn to you at First, you know, I'd love if you can tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and what you plan to work on uh, in the future. Sure. Hi, thank you for having me. The most exciting part, you know, in the past few months, issues that we've been doing, the special sections that come out once a month in the, all the five papers, it's a special section pullout. And uh, I've been really trying to understand about our communities and the need for the hyper-local information. It's gotten a lot of good reviews. And uh, what I try to do is provide relevant information. So for example, I'll talk about the current pullout that came out September 16th week. It's our fall guide. The fall guide has the main stories of farms. I mean, we live in, in an area where it's just beautiful farms, fabulous farms. So we featured those and we include information. So we come fall, people want to go apple picking, but there's been some changes due to the pandemic. So you can't just these days just show up at the farms, like at least two of them only take reservation. So if you go on week and some of them are only apple picking on weekends. So you have to make reservation because according to the farm owners, they want the best experience because some of the farms, we know there's long queues in the cars We've all been in those. So they want to avoid that. They say, make reservations so you can come here, enjoy and all that. So we include information like that. And I included some, uh, you know, history. I mean, these farms have been around like for 100 years here. And and it's so fortunate we have these beautiful farms and orchards here. Interesting um, enough, Vim, I, I'll tell you, I have a cousin who lives out in Brooklyn. I was actually a little annoyed with him because a couple of years ago, he was in North Salem without, I guess, one of the orchards, uh, apple picking. Didn't even let me know he was up here. I, I found out from Facebook. But, you know, it just goes to show you that, um, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're it's definitely very popular up here and it does attract people from, you know, hour and a half, two hours away. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, they want to give this experience because it gets crowded. So we include that. And then we've included the information people should have because there are some rules there. Some farms allow dogs, some farms don't. And then you make the reservation, the food. So we included all that. So what we try to do is to give information, relevant information so people could use. And then we include some See, the special sections, you can see a like a facelift to it. I really focus on beautiful visuals because people don't really have time to read every little note. And, you know, we want to attract people, see what we've got. Like a cute story is the donut report, we call it. So what we did was I recruited my kids, my family and extended family to go taste these apple cider donuts in our farms. And that was a fun thing to do because everybody loves apple cider donuts and they're all good donuts, but it was fun for family to go. And we rated them. Of course, my son was like, I told them, you know, give me some reviews after you guys eat these donuts. So he goes like a really donut food taste. He goes, this apple cider donut tastes like donut. (laughs) So it was, but it was fun. We were, you know, we had fun. It was a good family thing. And people can see, we try to put different things. Some farms uh, gave us a little secret about that, little different taste and all that. So it's good. And the most important thing I wanted to say is the hyper-local content of these special sections. You can keep these pullouts, you know, and refer to them for weeks. So because sometimes we have a home improvement pullout coming out. I mean, the amount of information we have, somebody's renovating their house. You can just pull out our special section and look, oh, Joko has this or another client, another business has this. And they are all like 10, 15 minutes from us. So we're not really focusing where you have to drive for 30 minutes to choose a tap or a sink for a kitchen sink. So it's all in our area and we are giving the information about what is available. So that's something valuable and I think it'll be very beneficial to our communities. You know, Vim, I have to say, I, I absolutely you know love the new role that you're filling it with Halston Media, you know, and you kind of uh, are sort of a uh, go between between our businesses and marketing and, and our content and, you know, really trying to maybe help bring interesting content about businesses to our readers and, uh, you know, also working with our clients through marketing. So uh, it's, I think, a very valuable uh, role. That's one area that I wanted to mention. So this content that I'm trying to come up with, it's got twofold for two different parties. One is for the business owners in our communities. I mean, now with the pandemic, you know, tapering down and all that. So businesses are picking up. So we are providing an avenue for our local businesses to really come in and we can package these content. You know, it's not like hard sell. We're like, okay, go to visit and buy our product from our client kind of thing. No, we give valuable information. Like for instance, this new baker moved from the city to one of our towns. She makes amazing cakes and she's a believer in clean eating and she makes gorgeous cakes, vegan cakes, gluten-free and all that. So that's a really plus for our community. Somebody right here bakes and she's a well-known baker too. So what we're doing, we're going to create like a series of columns where she gives tips on how to do a zero waste kitchen, which is so important these days. You know, we waste so much food. She's really passionate about it. She will give tips on how to do that. So what we will do is we can tie up with a business that promotes clean eating or has products like, you know, vegan and gluten-free items. And we give this information to people. 
So those kind of businesses can come to us with this content where we can tie it together and it's a win-win for everybody. That's fantastic. Thank you, Vim. And, and I have to say, anytime I empty my refrigerator with all the groceries that we bought for the week is a success in our household because sadly, we I, I think... Uh, in America, we do waste a lot of food and, you know, especially with little kids in my house. And it's definitely a challenge and always a success whenever we accomplish that. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm going to jump over now to Tom Walagorski. I know, uh, you know, he has some things to share about our town, some exciting things happening in Somers and in North Salem. But first, I want Tom to say there was some news involving them also with a 5K, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, it's uh, funny. You know, we, were, you know, we were discussing before the podcast started how um, unusual it is that we're all working remotely. And especially for somebody like myself, I've only been here for seven months. And you know, there's certain people that I feel like I interact with every day, but I haven't actually met. So on uh, Sunday morning, uh, September 12th, I was over at the um, Somers Library Foundation's. Uh, they, they do a 5K run to raise funds. And uh, who comes over and introduces herself but our special sections editor, Vim Wilkinson. And I actually got to see her run, dominate, and compete in the 5K. And it was a was it was a great day. It was a nice way to go out and meet people, and it was exciting to meet them for the first time in person. So yeah, that was a great event. My brother-in-law Steve Wilkinson. You know, we all live in the same town. We do that. It's just the both of us in the family because the kids ditched us. They're like, no, we're not running. So that was great, and it's good to contribute to our. Uh, Somers Library. It's a great library. And, you know, we wanted to support that. And uh, Tom, like other things going on in Somers? To start on you know, a little bit of a, uh, a sad note, I just wanted to express my condolences to uh, both the Herbert family and the uh, Kamara family. Both uh, both suffered uh, big losses lately. Dawn Herbert passed away last Friday and uh, Christine Kamara passed away on September 13th. So I know there are fundraising efforts underway for both of those families and you know, the children that are left behind. So uh, our condolences, and we're going to try to do whatever we can to help out with that. On a uh, more uh, more positive note, we do have some uh, very exciting things coming up uh, in Somers. Starting with on Saturday, um, September eighteenth at uh, Reese Park, we have a um, it's the Somers Big Bang Fireworks Show. And uh, I know uh, everybody in Somers was kind of bummed they missed out on the fireworks this past year uh, around the 4th of July just because of pandemic concerns. So, yeah, it'll be from uh, 5 to 9 in Reese Park. There's going to be live music. There's going to be the Alliance Club famous barbecue. That should be a really awesome event, kind of, I guess, an official end to summer before we go into fall here. So I know everybody's very excited about that. And then uh, the following week on um, September 25th, we also have Celebrate Somers. You know, the big street fair celebrating our community. And that's actually going to be a, a special pullout for our paper on coming out on September 23rd. So uh, Vim and I are hard at work on that. And, uh, you know, so we do have some uh, very exciting things happening in the Somers community. Are there any nerves about Delta variant and how that might impact? I know the Delta variant. My parents now live in Heritage Hills. Heritage Hills, it's not exclusively a senior community, but as a lot of seniors, you know, I do know Delta is on the mind of a lot of people, not just seniors, but a lot of seniors. Do you think that might impact the turnouts or is there any fear about that? I think it would as a, as it's still impacting everything. I mean, we had an article about it and, you know, up on social media and there was a, a little concern in the comment section, but I would say nothing more than your average event. And, uh, you know, in speaking with the organizers and then, you know, the town officials who are, who are running the show for the fireworks, you know, it is going to be outdoors. So everybody will have plenty of space to socially distance as much as they feel comfortable. I think that as far as everything goes, just the fact that it is outdoors and everybody has a lot of space to spread out and just be, you know, common sense and courtesy. And I think it's going to be a really fun night. But like anything, you know, I have to imagine that there are a little concern that, you know, that may impact the turnout. But I think it's going to be a great night for the community. I'm excited for it. And uh, you, I'm sorry, you were mentioning North Salem. 
Uh, yeah, actually, before we jump off Summers, there's just one other story that I wanted to make mention of something that uh, kind of touched me just as, you know, as we try to, you know, focus on hyper local things. And uh, I, I like good stories and happy endings too. Um, this brought to my attention that there was a group of kids from Somers. They live in the neighborhood of um, Hilltop and Valley Drive. And it was the, the week before the, um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And these kids basically all got together and they started just a lemonade stand, something really simple, standard kid stuff. But this turned into the neighborhood and the little community that these streets all have together. And they just started raising money and the kids just started feeding off the energy and they started doing deliveries and the parents started getting virtual lemonade stands for fundraising. And just it became this nice two day event of the kids just doing nothing but selling lemonade. And their cause was that they wanted to donate everything that they raised to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation which, you know, is a, a 9-11 based charity and everything. And I just thought that was, a, you know, a really special effort and uh, just, you know, something that the I know the parents and the kids and just, you know, I think the community in general should just be really proud of what these kids did for a couple of days. Something great. something worth highlighting. Do we, do we know how much they raised? Uh, they raised just over $200. Okay, but, selling, you know, but at selling lemonade at 50 cents a cup, that shows the effort that they put in over, over two days. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a fantastic organization, you know, from everything I, I know about it. So it's a and fantastic they were really young, right? They were just like 10 or 12 year olds. And they were yeah, yeah. Everybody just in that age group. And that makes it, you know, even more impressive that they were doing this on, you know, just on bikes. And uh, I, you know, the parents helped out with the social media aspect of it, but I appreciated that they did it the old fashioned way. That's just, you oh, know, yeah. that's hard work. Right. I read that one of them was doing bike delivery of the lemonade or something, right? They were yeah, yeah. They actually, they started that to kind of expand their, you know, they had the traditional lemonade stand, but they actually started doing bike deliveries to, uh, you know, to kind of expand their area there. They can call it Lemonade Dash. <laughs> so, and then uh, uh, yeah. switching, uh, switching gears to North Salem, uh, again, to start on a little bit of a, uh, a sad note, uh, again, you know, the condolences to the family of uh, Michael Benelli Jr. He was um, from uh, everybody we spoke to was, uh, you know, a big fixture in the community, very well-liked individual. And he was known for um, being a pretty incredible artist. And actually, his drawings were featured in a book. It was the uh, historic landmarks of the town of North Salem. And, you know, in putting our, our story up just about his passing and everything, it got this really, really nice response on social media of just all the individual lives that he touched just with his illustrations and people that he had done drawings of their property and their houses that they still had hanging up. You know, looking through some of his artwork, we have some of it up on our North Salem Tap Into site. And he was a very gifted artist. And uh, you seem like he really loved the North Salem community and everything. And uh, he'll definitely be missed. So it was, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a sad note for the community. but. Absolutely. Sounds like an incredible person. Yeah. There's also, you know, also positive stuff too, uh, as far, you know, the good things coming for our schools actually uh, coming up next week after this airs on um, Saturday, uh, September 25th will be a uh, North Salem homecoming. So uh, everybody should come out and support their Tigers. There's going to be a uh, home games for all the varsity sports, uh, starting with field hockey at noon. And then they pretty much go all the way through until um, boys soccer goes against Haldane at four o'clock. So we'll have a, we'll have a full schedule of the homecoming events and everything. And that's always a, that's always a fun day for the community. Everybody, you know, come out and support the student athletes. So do I uh, do have some, uh, some exciting things coming up too. Nice. It's happening again. I mean, it was uh, definitely a, a kind of a lost year last year. So. Oh, uh, all the, uh, all the coaches and student athletes that I talked with, that was one of the big things that they, you know, every, everybody lost out on something last year, but I feel like the seniors last year got hit especially hard that they didn't have the traditional homecoming. So it's exciting to see that back. 
I'm going to talk briefly um, about Mayapak and then uh, we'll get to uh, Nick and Brian. You know, I know, uh, I guess, uh, just talking about a s- sad note, there is a gentleman, Howard Byersky, and uh, he was uh, 53 years old and he passed away. And he was actually a street maintenance worker for the town of Carmel and really just from everything I understand about him, really made a deep connection to the people in town. You know, he knew a lot of the the shop owners, always had a smile on his face. He really was a well-liked member of the community, a dedicated employee of the town of Carmel. So, you know, we do send our condolences about uh, Howard. And, and actually, uh, I know, uh, I guess his nickname was Howie. Everyone called him Howie. So, you know, we definitely send our, our condolences. And also, um, just like our some of our other towns, October 3rd is the Mayapak Street Fair. So uh, we'll have a big a special pullout coming out ahead of that in our September 30th issue. So uh, Nick, I'm going to jump to you. And thank you for coming on our show. Um, and uh, you have a couple of neat stories you wanted to discuss an ultimate Frisbee story, I guess it was one of them. So I'd love to hear about that. And so this comes to us from the American ultimate disc league playoffs is a quarterfinal matchup. And the AUDL is actually the highest level of ultimate Frisbee in the country. So top professional level action coming to us right from Granite Knolls park, because the New York empire, which plays in New Rochelle were displaced from their home on September 1st due to the flooding from hurricane Ida. So Jim Martirano, our Yorktown's parks and rec superintendent, got reached out to by Matt Stevens, who is a player and general manager for the Empire. And they had previously played in a couple of leagues. Martirano has been a fan of Ultimate Frisbee. He's been playing since college and high school. So we reached out to him that following Thursday after that crazy storm from Ida. They worked out a deal to allow the Empire to play their quarterfinal game against Atlanta at Granite Knowles and had to move the schedule around a little bit because of the Yorktown Youth Soccer Club Labor Day tournament. So the soccer tournament had to end about 30 minutes earlier, and then they had to move the game back about 45 minutes to accommodate for Atlanta's delay in travel because they took a bus from JFK and that ended up getting delayed with the crazy traffic and all the road closures. So they ended up starting at 745. The only condition that um, that the Empire had for Granite Knowles was to make sure that there was viable internet connection, which there is at Granite Knowles, for live streaming purposes. So once that was all ironed out, they waived ticket sales fees just to get the game in. And they brought fans because it was a really cool environment, all the players said. So the game starts. The Empire, who I think they were... I know they were first place. I don't know what their record was. I think they were like 11-1 coming into this game. They go down big at the first half. They're down four. And then right after the second half starts, they go down five. And then their coach, Charlie Hoppus, who I had the opportunity to talk to, called the timeout, which Steven said was the turning point of the game. And they mounted a crazy comeback. At the end of regulation, uh, the game's tied. Atlanta throws like a Hail Mary pass. And the 2019 MVP of the league, Ben Yacht, makes this like crazy full extension diving block to send it to OT. And then the first score of OT is another crazy diving play for him to score. And then at the very end, all these highlights are on YouTube, by the way. And it's like a 13-minute video, but so worth your time. Atlanta tied the game late in OT. And then... Uh, one of the Empire's captains, his name's Jack Williams, who played like something like 40 points out of, I think it was like 43 of total. So he's on the field the whole game. Like as the OT period, as time expires, throws like a, another Hail Mary from like way downtown. And then it's hanging up in the air. You can see the Atlanta players packed underneath. And Ryan Oscar, who is a first year Empire player, leaps above the crowd, brings Frisbee down walk-off victory in the quarterfinals and they go on to the semifinals next week. And it was just, it seems like a, such a great event for Granite Knowles. 
great use of the space. All the players said they love the park. Their coach described the setting as epic, which was very cool. And you can kind of see it in the video. It's like they're up on that big hill. They got the beautiful field, the beautiful lights. And it's just a great fan environment with everyone kind of packed around. They said it was a very intimate experience, kind of different from what they have at their home field. So it was very cool for them. The Empire said they would love to return to Granite Knolls. I know that Jim has already been in talks with them about setting up Frisbee camps for the youth of Yorktown. And Jim was really excited about just kind of introducing Ultimate Frisbee to Yorktown because there's a lot of crossover between, obviously, Yorktown is a big lacrosse town. And a lot of lacrosse players crossover with um, with Ultimate Frisbee. So there's a big potential. Is that the sport that it's closest to? I mean, is, uh, is it? I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, oh, kind of I- similar because they're running up and down. I have some insight into this because I went to Yorktown High School. And when I was there, there was actually a pretty robust Ultimate Frisbee Club, uh, mm. which I played in. It was very big when I was in school. Um, you, you know, I had, you had uh, a dozen teams and they would get together and play after school on the fields at the schools. And, uh, it, you know, it was very organized. <laughs> and I know so Jim Martirano obviously went to Yorktown High School as well a few years. Uh, he graduated a few years before I did. I'm sure he played in that league too. It sounds like he, uh, I know he loves ultimate Frisbee and uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit ingrained in Yorktown's DNA. I don't know if it's still going on, but it, it was very big at one point. I think Jim's yeah. plan is to kind of like unlock that again and, you know, reintroduce ultimate Frisbee to the Yorktown community. Cause it can be like, it's such a great sport to get people active. It's very easy to play. You only need a disc and a field and bodies and then you're all set. Right. Yeah. It's not really similar to any sport, but it's kind of like football in the sense where, you know, you catch it. Once you catch it, you can't run with it. And you just, you know, you get guarded by a defender and you got to find the open man and throw it downfield. And eventually you try to get in the end zone. That's the goal of the game. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like fun. It sounds like that, um, that playoff game, hosting that playoff game is a huge success and they'd love to return. Unfortunately, the Empire... Um, so their championship weekend was in D.C. last weekend. They won their semifinal game, but they fell in the final by three points to Raleigh. But a great season. They made the, the championship each of the last three seasons. So if you're looking for a team to get into in the AUD, look, for, look out for the New York Empire. And if you're looking for a leisurely disc activity, you can try disc golf. Uh, that's actually fun, too. They have a whole course over at uh, the FDR Park. So uh, I think that's very cool, too. A lot of disc-related games here in your kind you can play. <laughs> So, Nick, you also have, uh, I guess, another story you wanted to uh, mention. Something about a tattoo shop. Yes. So, it's, the tattoo shop is Be Inked. It opened in Yorktown on August 1st, and it was opened by a Yorktown resident and Lake graduate, Gianna Caranfa, who graduated from Lakeland, um, I want to say, she said 10 years ago. She's 28 now. But anyway, she has a crazy life story. She had a stem tumor discovered in her brain when she was two years old on her second birthday and was saved by Dr. Fred Epstein, who is kind of famous for this inventing this surgery that saved her life. At the time, the insurance said they would not cover it because the surgery was too unknown and too risky. And she said that Epstein told her parents to come in regardless. He would do the surgery for free. Like he would take care of them and it works. So the procedure takes out 80% of the tumor and then kind of leaves the 20% to just die off by itself. And it was successful. She is left with no feeling in her left side. I think she said she has nerve damage in her left side. So she actually gets all her tattoos on that side. So she doesn't feel any pain, which I thought was like a nice little cool silver silver lining. That's clever. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So she's always found solace in art. Her parents ended up divorcing at age 13 or 14. She stayed with her grandma and she turned to art as a release for like her emotions and really found a passion for it. So she wanted to, she went to school. She went to purchase to be an art teacher. She majored in sculpting. 
She worked at, I forget the name of the place, but it's in Rock Spring, New York or Rock. I got to look it up. But she worked at the factory where they make the Oscar trophies. And she said while she was there, she, like it was a very cool experience, but it just wasn't what she wanted to do. She found she realized that her passion was for creating art. So she got an apprenticeship at a tattoo shop that she asked me not to name. So I will not. Her experience there was she said it was a little uncomfortable because it's like one room. There's four artists there. It's like a nine foot by nine foot room. And for a girl who wants to go in there and get her tattooed, and maybe it's on a private part of her body to be in that open space surrounded by like tattooed men in a male dominated industry, it's not comfortable for them. So she got the idea to open her own tattoo shop where there's private rooms. She said she set it up to make it feel like you're in your living room with TV. She's got snacks. She's got water. She goes, whatever you need to get to feel at home. She schedules appointments solely through her Instagram page, which is Gianna Caranfa underscore tattoo. She spends the whole day with people. She makes it just as a relaxing experience as possible to give them the best tattoo possible. You know, they draw the tattoo together. She makes sure that both parties are happy with the outcome. Um, she can offer a range of different styles. She is an apprentice now, and she has another staff member who is also very talented. You can see all the art on their Instagrams. It is, it is really amazing because they can do any style, any size, any color. It, it really is cool. Yeah. I have to say I'm, I'm too much of a wimp to get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've wanted to, but I'm just, I don't know. Just <laughs> something about ne- needles yeah, going to my I don't, like, I don't like needles either, but I think I'm going to get a tattoo soon. But I was kind of talking to her about it. But she's got a range of styles, a range of options. And it's right in Yorktown. It's a way to support a, a local Yorktown business. And her life story was just so crazy. It's like both of these stories were kind of on the surface, not what they seemed. And then you dive deeper into them and they become this like wild turn of events with crazy stories embedded in them. That's what's wonderful about community journalism to really get to know the people exactly. behind, you know, some of the stuff that you see, uh, you know, the, you don't know the deep stories behind. So, um, and I guess you wanted to highlight a couple other things before we uh, head over to Brian. So, um, yeah. so let's yep. talk about the Lakeland schools. So at their September 9th meeting, Dr. Brendan Lyons, the school superintendent reported that 10 students had tested positive across all school buildings. And there were also three positive staff cases. Now, he said to keep in mind that many of these cases had come from before school and then were brought into school. And they resulted in 33 quarantines with students and 17 quarantines with staff members. I don't have updated numbers from that time. So these are, remember, from last week, from last Thursday, September 9th. And I don't think anyone was too worried about it. He actually said that the new guidance from the Department of Health. They actually helped the district cases in not having as many quarantines as they would have last year under the same regulations. Despite this, there's still no plans for a remote option because that would require the district to offer a hybrid option, which based on the survey results they got from the school district families that they sent out in June, the hybrid option just didn't work last year and they want to avoid that as much as possible. There was a petition signed by 366 people advocating for a remote option. But Lyons at that meeting said there were still no plans for a remote option at this time. Of course, it's all subject to change. Like the school years have just been crazy in COVID and, you know, they're at the mercy of the agencies that regulate them. So we'll see what happens. But at this time, there's no plans for a remote option. And they weren't worried about the COVID outbreak because, you know, it's inevitable that quarantines will happen and they handle them the best they can. They're so well prepared, like as you have to be when you have the lives of a thousand children in your building. But They'll be fine there. And then from last night's Yorktown Town Board meeting, they introduced two 
programs in conjunction with on September fifteenth. Yeah, all right. September September fifth. No, fourteenth. Sorry, no, Tuesday night board meeting. All right, great. Okay, so two energy efficiency programs with sustainable Westchester, one called Community Solar, which is available to both NYSEG and Con Ed customers, and one called Grid Rewards, which is just available to Con Ed customers. But Community Solar, if you sign up, you are eligible to get just clean energy from a solar farm that you're kind of assigned to or you sign up with. And you can receive just discounts on your energy bill. It's just a way to give back to the environment and kind of you know get off fossil fuels. New York, the state of New York has very aggressive climate goals as they should. They're trying to get to a 70% reduction in emissions or in clean energy or carbon fossil fuel uses by 2030 and trying to be carbon emission free by 2040. So this is a way to chip in. I know one way to be uh, to improve the environment is uh, nuclear, you know, and I know that's what I know that's what France. I know France. I don't know about the rest of Europe. I know France is very big into nuclear. I don't mm. know why we're not, but um, you know that's definitely a big way to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. But anyway, that's just me opining. Because you know, I- <laughs> well, we had an Indian point, but I don't think that's in use anymore. But Grid Rewards is available to just content customers. It's a free-to-download app that can just help you track your energy usage in your home. And in the summer of 22, they offer cash discounts or cash rewards and savings opportunities on your electricity bills. So it's just a great way to help out the community and kind of help Yorktown go green. And if 10 people sign up for each program, actually, which is when 10 people sign up for each program, Yorktown will receive a $5,000 grant through the CEC or through NYSERDA, which is New York State Energy Research. Let me see. Let me see. I wrote this down. NYSERDA, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. So five thousand for each program, totaling ten thousand to go through to go to Yorktown's green initiatives, which can always be helped. Another story from Yorktown: Troop One Sixty Five, which has been in Yorktown for sixty five years, has the Boy Scout Troop. Yes, Boy yeah. Scout Troop has been looking for a new charter because their old charter, the First Presbyterian Church of Yorktown, informed them that they will not be renewing their charter after this year. And if they don't find a place to stay, they'll be dissolving. They've produced 93 Eagle Scouts through the town of Yorktown. Their current troop has 30 Scouts and 35 Cubs. And their community chair, Mary Rose Gummerson, spoke at the meeting on Tuesday and was basically just asking the town to help find them a home. She asked if the town could be the charter, and that's never been done before. The town attorney, Adam Rodriguez, said he didn't think it was permissible under the law, but this could be an easy fix. There's plenty of non-for-profit organizations that would love to support a um, a troop that's been a part of Yorktown forever. So Slater and Rodriguez said that there's really going to be no issue in finding them. They threw out the firehouses as options. They suggested the American Legion, the VFW, because all the Boy Scout troop is looking for is, is just a place to meet every Thursday and a place to store their gear and tents. And they're a very civic-minded organization, Gummerson said. They uh, they do service trips. They try to do one a month. They help out their charter with service. They can they build things. They, you know, they offer a wide range of services for people. And then my final story from the town board meeting was another Jim Martirana story. He suggested that the town update the town code to allow alcohol use in specific uh, alcohol use and sales in specific circumstances and specific parks. Just for just to help, you know, help the Parks and Recreation Department plan for better things, allow the people that want to drink on parkland in a, in a specific circumstance to get a permit to do so. Because, you know, they host family parties at these parks. They host, they're trying to host like dinners in the park, like theater in the park. 
and people want to enjoy a beer or wine there. And under the, the current town code, they can't. So everyone seemed to be on board for it. They see it seemed to be an easy fix. It's just a matter of Martirano meeting with Diana Quast and Adam Rodriguez and kind of working something out to update the town code, bringing it back to the town board for approval. There was Councilwoman Alice Roker brought up liability concerns because the town owns the parkland and, you know, anything that happens on town-owned property, they're going to have a huge liability for. So they're going to be looking into insurance policies for this. Martirano suggested Railroad Park, Downing Park, and the Sparkle Lake Community Service Building as eligible places to have light alcohol consumption in specific circumstances with the permit. He did not want Granite Knowles Park. He didn't think that would be appropriate because there's so much traffic. It's just such a huge park, the wide range of people coming in. But I think it would be a boost to the town's like ability to offer programming because I know Slater had mentioned that he wanted to do like dinners in the park where he hosts a restaurant at a park for a weekend. And then you can eat outside. You can have a nice cooked meal. You can enjoy a beer or a glass of wine. And this is just a way to help them do that. And I assume now under the New York law, people can tote too at any of these parks. It's wherever you can smoke tobacco, you can smoke weed. Okay. And I don't believe you can smoke tobacco in a lot of these parks. Okay. All right. So, yeah. Yeah. You can smoke it on the sidewalk. Yeah. Not not in the park or town hall or anything like that. (laughs) So, Brian, I just want to jump to you. I know you want to start start off by talking about some, uh, I guess, a debate with affordable housing. Right, right. So I know initially I was going to talk about something else and I will get to something over in Katona in a little bit. And I hope Nick doesn't mind me stealing his thunder a little bit here. So um, I started working at Halston Media in March 2013 and I started covering hyperlocal news about two years before that, including in Yorktown. One of the big stories at the time was affordable housing. And fast forward 10 years later, one of the big stories now is affordable housing. And it all goes back to the uh, settlement agreement that the Westchester County had with the U.S. Housing and Urban Development. Basically, very long. I'm not going to go into it. But they were sued back when Andy Spano was county executive. They eventually settled and agreed to build 750 units of affordable housing in 31 predominantly white communities in Westchester, the least diverse communities. That was the major part of it. That's what you know got the headlines. That's what kept being reported. But there were smaller things too, such as the county uh, you know, would develop a campaign and promote a support for housing and undertake an analysis of impediments to housing. And what that really means is uh, zoning. They were going to look at zoning and see uh, where they can make changes to better after this settlement is over how affordable housing can continue at, to grow in Yorktown, or not Yorktown, but Westchester. You know, this topic actually also reared its ugly head also in um, the presidential. Yes, uh, well, I know Donald yeah. Trump has bragged quite a bit about that fact that he, uh, yeah. he he's kept affordable housing out of communities like Yorktown. And I know that was a big deal and you know, just a lot of uh, debate about, you know, zoning and who controls it. Right. So this issue, that, believe it or not, was just settled, I think, case closed a month ago. The federal government said it's done. The settlement is complied with. However, I guess before I go forward, I want to go back to 2016 when Michael Grace was the town supervisor. He's a very conservative guy. He uh, likened himself to Donald Trump. He, I remember at one time he said, I was Donald Trump before Donald Trump. He's very agreeable with his policies and that, and he's not the biggest fan of affordable housing. He's not the biggest fan of having any laws for affordable housing. And when he was supervisor, he repealed the affordable housing law that was on the books, which required in part new developments of eight or more properties for every eight 
units, there would be one unit of affordable housing. And that's very similar to the model ordinance the county was proposing. I think it was like 10 to 1. And that's a big deal because right now there's two huge developments in Yorktown totaling about 300 units. So that would be about 30 affordable units right there. I mean, obviously developers don't want them. They prefer market rate housing. Uh, They make more money that way. So they're happy to not have to do affordable. But right now, the problem is it's especially problematic with the town because they're seeking funds to build a, uh, to extend their sewer district to, to bring sewers to more homes. And that's a $14 million project. And it's only doable with $10 million grant that the county has say over. So basically, the county, even though this is settled, the county is kind of saying to Yorktown, hey, you know, we're controlling these funds and we kind of want you to have that affordable housing law on the books. The model ordinance, not a requirement of the settlement. Obviously, that settlement's done. But, uh, you know, we, we're controlling this money and we want you to have this law on the books. You know, Matt Slater, the town supervisor in Yorktown, he's kind of, you know, saying, oh, everything's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll, uh, you know, it's not going to be a problem. What's his um, position? I don't know his position exactly. Has he stated that publicly at a meeting, Nick? What? That he thinks Whether that he is be- for the law or not. Um, model ordinance. He hasn't like said 100% if he's for model ordinance or not. When I had that talk with him that spurred the article that made me reach out to Catherine yeah. Chiaffi, he said that the model ordinance was one of 14 points the town could hit on and he yeah, believed yeah. that they did, it wasn't required. So, I mean, yeah, but basically he didn't answer the question, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't expect him to take an opinion right now. That's never been really his style to jump out ahead of things. He likes to work with people behind the scenes. I know he's trying to work this out with the county. I know that, you know, Ed Lochterman and Tom Diana might be more opposed. I don't know if they'd be willing to leave $10 million on the table for this. Everyone's got their principles, but I don't know. That's a lot of money to leave on the table. So it seemed from just the vibe that I've gotten from the past board meetings that they all wanted this Halix Mill Sewer project to move forward. So I feel like they will work as hard as they can do it to get this $10 million. And Norma Drummond, the county's commissioner of the planning department, will be at next week's board meeting on Tuesday to for the specific purpose to work out different options to tell Yorktown and Slater what they have to do to get these funds. And when I talked to Catherine Chiaffi on, I believe it was Tuesday or yesterday, I can't really remember. But she said that the town and the county are going to work together to get this done. Call me cynical. I know that's political speak. We're going to work together. But County Executive George Latimer, he told the Journal News that, this is a quote, we aren't going to back down. So, I mean, that that's a different vibe than, you know, what Slater and Chaffee are saying publicly in their press statements. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 so when George Latimer says something like that, you know, he's, so I am curious to see where this goes. Maybe they do work it out, but what does work it out mean? Does work it out mean the town will adopt some sort of set-aside law where they require developers to... So that, that that's what I'm more interested in what we're going to see how this plays out. So if the town wants the money, they may have to, they may not have to. I know the county probably doesn't want to seem weak. And I know the town doesn't want to be held hostage. So it's it's kind of a, you know, who's going to blink first. Yeah. And we'll find out on Tuesday, obviously. And unfortunately for our circulation, you know, our, our deadline for the Yorktown News is Tuesday and that meeting happens Tuesday night. So that'll be in the, the following week's print. And any thoughts on that, Brett? I saw you. Uh, you you look like you were very interested in it. I'm, frankly, I'm, I find personalities interesting. I do find Matt Slater's style of governing 
interesting and surprising. That's really what was going through my brain, just because we all knew uh, Matt Slater behind the scenes when he was working for um, former state senator Terrence Murphy. And I definitely feel like he has a different style as a town supervisor than when uh, he was working for Terrence Murphy. Matt, so I, Matt, I find it interesting. Matt is very smart. He is not the type of person to have a war of words in the press. That's yeah. just not his style. He'd prefer to, you know, if he's going to have those conversations, he'll have them behind the scenes. I'm sure they've had heated conversations, you know, but, you know, he'll never he'll never say, you know, slam his fist on the table and, and get mad at the county to us. That's not the way he governs. And, and there's something to be said for that. Um, so, you know, that, <laughs> that, that's where that stands. So right now, it's, we'll see, you know, the proof will be in whatever they decide is the agreement there. Whenever the vote comes down, whatever the county requires for that $10 million, that's what the proof will be, regardless of the nice things they're saying about each other. You know, look, another thing also, just think about it. Look, I, I live in Fairfield County and, you know, my taxes are, you know, a lot lower than, you know, what my house would be if I lived in Westchester. And this is because mm-hmm. I believe, I believe there's not really a, I don't know too much about Connecticut uh, state government and Connecticut government in the counties. I don't think there's really too much of a Fairfield County government. It's just, you know, look, I think multiple layers of a government are not useful. And, and I personally believe in local control as much as possible in the fact that, you know, look, there's your town residents who pay county taxes. Now that the county is holding hostage taxes that your town residents paid, I, I'm on the town side with this. But anyway, we can debate this forever. I know that was Michael Grace's. He believed he just he felt that the town should have control over its zoning code. And, and um, you know, who cares what the federal government thinks? I remember quoting him when he repealed this law. You know, they had a housing monitor who was uh, overseeing this. And I remember he said, what's he going to come beat me up? Let him try. Yeah, that's what yeah, he said. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you know, you know where I stand politically, and I have to say I personally admire that a lot. <laughs> what, what Michael Grace did. So uh, anyway, um, and and I, I know you also wanted to talk about. Well, as- I'll, t- I'll talk about the asphalt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's not quite on as big of a scale, but uh, over in Katona, there's this, uh, and this is hyper local news at its finest. Something that you know no other paper is going to report on, but it's definitely great for us. Is that in a neighborhood in Katona, you know, their sidewalk was falling into disrepair. So the uh, Department of Public Works over there fixed it up. But instead of using concrete, they used asphalt. And the, the neighborhood residents are not happy. You know, from a quality of life perspective, they said it's just not up to snuff. It matches too much with the road. You know, the road's asphalt, the sidewalk's asphalt. It looks, you don't, you don't see the delineation as much. It just doesn't look as nice as concrete. And Kevin Wynn, the, um, the head of the DPW over in Bedford, you know, he's basically saying concrete is more expensive, asphalt is cheaper, and asphalt got the job done here. Uh, you know, it fixed up the sidewalk. It might not look as nice, but it, it's fixed it up for cheaper. And that's kind of the issue here. It's, it's you know, I'm like, I'm sympathetic. My father-in-law is a highway superintendent. He, he faces these same issues. He's had to repair some sidewalks with asphalt over the years. It's impossible to please everybody, especially when you're on a budget. I think every politician would love to pave every road in their town and fix every sidewalk, but they're on a budget. That's basically what it comes down to. So, I mean, if the town wants decides they want to allocate more money and put and fix those sidewalks up with concrete, that's uh, maybe they'll do that. But that's basically where it stands right now. And I know the neighborhood residents, that's what they want. So. Very interesting. So, uh, well, I appreciate everyone's time with this. Uh, you know, this is what local journalism is all about. And, uh, oh, absolutely. And uh, I really appreciate just uh, hearing what's going on in all of our towns. So uh, anyone else want to jump in before we end this uh, episode? 
Uh, while I'm on a roll, just going to say I want to dive deeper into our local elections soon because looking at the calendar, I can't believe it's actually less than two months away. Yorktown has been suspiciously quiet, even though we have a competitive town council race. The supervisor position is uncontested for the first time I can remember. Uh, that probably speaks to the job that Matt Slater is doing there. I think he's well liked by both parties. Like we were talking about before, he's a very shrewd politician in that sense. But the council race is very competitive. Uh, that's the only competitive race actually in New York Towns. But I'm gonna I'm gonna start diving deeper in that. We're two months out from the election. I haven't really heard the candidates really battle on the issues. I haven't even seen a negative ad. I haven't really seen much. I, I think it's I, so it's it's kind of interesting. I want to dive deeper into that soon, and then uh, so expect that coming soon in the next few weeks. Summers is also gonna be very cre- uh, very uh, competitive too. I actually just sent out my candidate surveys at the beginning of the week, so yeah, they'll be coming in our town as well. And I will tell you, if uh, just to increase some paranoia in Yorktown, I have one of the town board candidates at my house right now, which is why I'm, I need to end the episode. Oh, um, but, boy. But we are bu- <laughs> building a new server for Halston Media. I bought it a few months ago. It's been sitting around and we're starting the construction of the new server. It's going to be robust, really make everything a little, hopefully a little bit more smoother with deadline because I know we've always have some tech issues. So uh, yeah, Sergio Esposito is our IT guy running for town board, but we don't talk local politics. We just talk IT. <laughs> so, anyway, thanks. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, All right, right. Thanks, Brett. And, thanks, and Brett. Take care. <laughs> Bye.